This is MJ. I'm an author, an artist, and a podcast host, uh, or a podcaster is what I meant to say. Uh, I love Star Wars, and this is my fully operational analysis of The Mandalorian Chapter 9. This is fully operational episode 28. You can find more at mjmunoz.com slash fo or just mjmunoz.com. It's where all my work is kept and archived. Anyway, getting right into this. This was written and directed. It's the debut of Mandalorian Season 2. I was a little nervous that they would keep, uh, that they would like restart the chapter titling of the episodes, but fortunately they did not. This is Chapter 9, and uh, it was written and directed by, not Dave Filoni, the other guy. The big guy. Chef. <laughs> Happy Hogan. Why do I always do this? John Favreau. Anyway, there we go. Written and directed by John Favreau. It was, I think this is the longest episode of Mandalorian to date. It was entitled The Marshal, which I may or may not have already said. Uh, I've seen stuff online. I'm a little late to the party. So I've seen stuff naming, giving a name to this Marshal. Uh, and he's a character who appeared in... Uh, let's say Star Wars Aftermath, one of the three Star Wars Aftermath books written by uh, Chuck Wendig. <laughs> anyway, um, I, I've got mixed feelings on Mr. Wendig, but that doesn't matter right now because I'm talking about this episode. Um, I think this was the longest episode, and it had a lot of content. Like there was so much going on, and I have to say that uh, I really liked everything that was going on here. There were a couple things that I noticed were different. Like uh, there was a line that Mando said, like, oh, you know, such and such is our only hope. And he said such and such was their only hope or someone's only hope in a previous in season one. And I just thought, like, mm, hopefully little things like that are just, like, uh, <laughs> just callbacks based on uh, just, like, nostalgia callbacks that are just going to be in this first episode. Uh, the pilot of the new season, if, it, if a new season, if a subsequent season can be said to have a pilot, I don't know. Um, but hopefully it won't carry throughout everything because then otherwise it'll get really irritating. But anyway, as a uh, you know, longtime Star Wars fan and a person who's played KOTOR, I noticed that uh, you know, they're going after a crate Dragon. And at the end there, there's a crate Dragon Pearl. Um, and I doubt most people know what that is. And um, it's just kind of funny that uh, there popped up one here. Uh, and I guess with the scale of the crate Dragon in this episode versus the crate Dragon in KOTOR, uh, there's no way you could stick that thing in a lightsaber. Maybe a, like a Death Star uh, thing, but it's just kind of interesting that, uh, I don't know, it's just kind of interesting that there's like a you know neat little callback there. And I think the, uh, the Marshall's uh, speeder is made out of like Anakin's pod racer, you know, salvage parts and things like that. And uh, it was, you know, it was a really interesting story. Uh, I, I thought it was interesting that we got the return of Boba Fett without it being the return of Boba Fett. But then at the very end of the episode, we had the return of Boba Fett. <laughs> and uh, gosh, I think that's super interesting. And the whole thing feels uh, so full of potential. Um, and I'm just, I'm not exactly sure why. Like, is that is that a spinoff bait? Uh, do they want to do a, a spinoff Boba Fett story starring, um, oh gosh, not Jeremy. That's the other guy. Jeremy Bullock was the original Boba Fett uh, suit actor, I guess you could call him, from Empire and Return of the Jedi. Actually, there were other guys, too, but he's, like, the main one that everybody thinks of. And I think he did the original voice for Boba Fett. Um, gosh, I'm thinking about the Maori guy, whose name is not Daniel Logan. That's the younger guy. This is, uh, oh, my goodness. He was in Dora the Explorer, <laughs> if that helps. My kids watched it, and I was like, hey, it's this guy. I wonder if that's him getting ready to be in Star Wars again. Um, gosh. I cannot remember the name of this man, but the guy who played uh, Jango Fett in uh, Attack of Clones and who played all the clone troopers uh, in that and, and Revenge, uh, uh, yeah, excuse, excuse, mm, wow, I'm having a hard time today, Revenge of the Sith. 
I think it's really bothering me. I can't remember. Tamara Morrison. I believe his name is Tamara Morrison. Anyway, uh, so, you know, what is that? Is that just something to, to tease fans or is it, a, you know, an Easter egg or not an Easter egg, but like a little cameo or, or is it something else? I, I don't know. I feel a little dubious about, um, or the reason I feel a little dubious about it is, is that just a cool thing to be in there? Uh, there's this uh, snowflake writing method where you leave things and it's all different stuff that you could branch off and tell, you know, hundreds of stories, which is why you have uh, shows where they have, you know, casts of 20 or 30 people and each of them has interesting stories that are being told about them. Um, and, you know, I'm cool with that. I mean, Star Wars technically is that at this point. The Mandalorian is a snowflake based off of, you know, he's a he's a branch off of, you know, the larger Star Wars story, the, the Skywalker saga. Um which all stem from the original trilogy, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, that's fine. So anyway, just other than being, you know, cautious and dubious about some of the stuff going on, I've got to say I really liked it. I thought it was interesting. Um, I thought it was weird that the crate Dragon was uh, kind of more like a Graboid. If you've seen uh, old 90s movie, I guess it is, uh, Tremors. It's more like one of those, which was a little strange to me. That's not what I was expecting. Um, but then again, you know, that's okay. I was okay with my expectations being subverted in this case um but yeah i really i really like the idea uh of the episode overall you know mando's got to track down i i'm surprised that he's tracking down other mandalorians specifically to help him locate the child's home planet home world and uh, you know species so he can return them to him that just didn't seem like it was it didn't seem like that was the likely place he would go i would think he would have like, as a Mandalorian, just been like, hey, I'm a pretty capable dude. I'm going to go and find uh, zoologists, xenobiologists, like, you know, find somebody who knows about all the different species in the galaxy and work through them. I don't know how a Mandalorian is going to lead this Mandalorian, Din, uh, to the child's people. Like, that doesn't make any sense to me. So I, that's kind of like, I don't know if, I'm, I'm not going to call it a plot hole, but it's just kind of weird. Uh, and then it's another instance where, you know, the Mandalorian tries to do something, he encounters an obstacle, and then, you know, we spend an entire episode uh, with that obstacle. He goes to, uh, you know, he finds, not Fett, but the Fett armor, and, you know, he demands to have it back from the Marshal, and then it ultimately, in order to get it back without having to kill the guy, uh, and because the crate Dragon thing is, you know, pressing, uh, there's a win-win situation, you know, scenario that presents itself where, you know, they go ahead and do this, and, um... You know, he gets the Beskar, he gets, which I guess it's a Beskar that's painted, right? And that's probably the idea. Anyway, um, he gets the Beskar, he gets some meat. Um, I don't know, it's just, it's interesting because it, it really is a win-win-win situation. There's peace between the Tuscans and uh, and the town of Mas Per, per, per something. Anyway, there's uh, peace between them. Um, you know, the Crate Dragon is dead, it's going to stop, you know, hurting these people, which... I don't know the ecology, um, the ecology of you know Tatooine or whatever. I don't know how necessary those things are to exist, but you know people shoot coyotes and wolves and stuff. So I mean it's kind of like that, but just on a, a much grander scale. They remind me of the exogorths, which are the the worms that live in the asteroid that try to eat the falcon and stuff. Um, like the crate dragon is almost that scale of creature, and I wonder if they're all supposed to be that large or if that's just a really old one that's grown larger. Anyway, there's lots of interesting questions to ask, but like. It was very interesting to me in the story that what ended up happening just being this all-win situation for everybody. And, you know, for us, we, you know, we get to see the cool uh, action happen and, you know, the, the planning out. And um, it's just really interesting. So I, I like the sand people and the townspeople uh, coming together, the settlers, I guess you could call them, coming together and working against this thing. Uh, and it's just like, oh, what, the, what the sand people do with all the meat? I guess you could probably dry it and uh, preserve it and then have meat for, like, 
years to come potentially or for like everybody to eat really well for a couple of years uh if you tell all the other you know sand people clans or enclaves or whatever about it that's that's pretty neat um and i thought it was funny that they um at the end the child was uh like pawing that big hunk of meat that they caught from the crate dragon so um anyway that was interesting but yeah like there's no real like story implications for this other than like how armando is gonna help din to find the child's you know homeworld and family that doesn't make sense um you know is uh like boba fett proper going to come back somehow how can he is he going to go to the mandalorians did he witness did he see closely enough like oh hey there's a mandalorian in that razor crest um and i'm gonna go follow him and find him and rejoin the people or is he just like he's just living his own life now like boba fett you know not the mandalorian not the bounty hunter boba fett the man is having to live and survive out in the deserts and he's been doing it for decades um because he's an unaltered clone of Django, uh, as a return of the, oh no, this is only like five years after Return of the Jedi. Sorry, got confused for a second. Or five or so years, we don't know exactly how long. So, um, you know, it'd be it would be interesting to see like something about Boba Fett, but I just don't know that mass uh, the mass audience would be like would be into something with Boba Fett if he's not in the armor. I'm interested. I care about Boba uh, all the way from uh, you know his first appearance in Attack of the Clones to his stories in the Clone Wars. Um, you know, to seeing what would happen to him now, uh, and to have him really fully flesh. I mean, the movies, the original films, Return of the Jedi and Empire Strikes Back, did not flesh him out. They presented this character, and he was textured more as the story went on, as Lucas decided to give him a little more attention, and I would like to see what happens with him next. So I would be all for seeing, you know, even as I kind of, uh, when you know, was dubious about maybe this uh, Mandalorian episode being used as like a, you know, soft pilot for, you know, Boba Fett's adventures on Tatooine, um, I'd also be interested in it. Like my interest is peaked. I'm, I'm not going to lie. I'm not going to deny that. Um, but I just don't know that I'm the market for it. Although maybe I am. I who knows? Who knows how many people fit my profile? But regardless, it would have to be a good story. And I just, I don't know what it would be at this point. <laughs> um, I'd be more interested in seeing him survive the Sarlacc, which I guess it could do that. And then maybe his story ends with him living but losing the armor ultimately. I don't know. I don't know. Anyway, uh, I liked uh, the Marshal. He was a cool character. Uh, pretty fun. I mean, if this is going to be like season one, yeah, they're going to get back together. I was actually surprised at how competent he was in the armor. Um, he, you could use the Rising Phoenix, the jetpack. You could use that uh, missile. Where did he get more missiles? That's what I want to know. Where did he get more of those missiles? Because um, only one fits in there at a time. And I see no place on the, uh, um, on the armor that holds more missiles. So that's, you know. Kind of goofy, but it's also just, you know, space fantasy, space opera, right? Um, or maybe that was him it rhyming with him shooting twice in one episode. Uh, I don't really have anything else to say. I like the episode. Oh, I do. Uh, one more thing. Um, I'm going to close out with this. I like the music. There was something different about the music. It felt like uh, the guy, Johann Schwerbrush-Bach, uh, who's doing the music for this. Uh, I... I Dude seems really interesting, and I really liked something about him. I I really liked something about him when I watched the uh, the behind the scenes thing about uh, about the making of the music for the Mandalorian. Anyway, it seems like he's like expanding and pushing things even further. Like there's a lot uh, more richness to the tracks, I think. And I noticed like when they were bearing all the charges, uh, there was like the Mandalorian's theme playing underneath that, and um, it just it's interesting to hear it in a different context and. You know, beyond the fact that the theme is being 
uh, altered and tweaked to fit different situations and, and serve different roles in the score. Uh, I did like the new sounds that were in there, and it was just, they were very interesting. I'm wondering exactly uh, where the show will go musically, because um, uh, it's actually a surprisingly uh, strong and compelling part of the show. And, you know, Star Wars music, it's so important. Yeah, yeah, it's always so important. But, um, like, I didn't notice anything in Rebels. I didn't notice anything special for the most part. Um, uh, Clone Wars is funky because uh, Lucas wanted, like, a real flavor to each world and I just kind of you know rolled with that but like this we're getting to sit with one character for a long time as the main character he's our lens into this world so the music I guess this makes sense the music is going to be uh like everything's going to stem from his theme or whatever you call it and or his leitmotif um and it's going to be tweaked and whatever to fit the situation so like this is the score of the Mandalorian the core of it is this Da, da, dun, 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 da, 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 that's the core and everything else it mutates and it twists and it turns and it you know changes itself um to kind of like how we project onto the mandalorians you know you know feelings or whatever by uh well anyway, I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm abandoning that analogy it's just interesting how it seems like that one thing is the through line that theme is the through line and it's being uh altered by everything around it maybe this works kind of like how the mandalorian is altered by the all the experiences he has all the people he encounters it's changing him and causing him to grow and develop the same thing is happening with the score i hope that's true uh before i close out though uh i'm going to ask a couple questions who were all those people protecting the child there i think it was a bunch of weak way uh in episode one where he you know an ig11 go and free liberate the child from its former you know possessors tenders whatever and, you know, who were they? You know, who dressed them? What are the, what's that type of clothing, that weird little, you know, hoodie or like, you know, hood robe thing that he's got going on? Like, where does that come from? Why was he there? It's been 50 years. How did he get uh, taken from his people? Was it 50 years ago? Was it just one year ago? Was it a, a month before then? What's going on? And um, I think those are interesting questions. I think those are really, uh, I hope those things get explored and addressed. Like, was the Mandalorian basically like the villain going in? And these people who he killed and who he and IG-11 killed were all good people who were trying to help. Like, were they Church of the Force members who were trying to protect this youngling and get him back to his family or something like that? Uh, or maybe he was a Force-sensitive and they're still able to detect that, so they sent him... Like, I doubt all of Yoda's species is Force-sensitive. That's a dumb idea. I hope that is not true. I hope there is no species in the... Since they wiped away the EU, I hope there is no species in the universe that is either all Force-sensitive or all force blind, even though, well, no, there's that. I was thinking about the, uh, in the episode with Jar Jar and, and Mace Windu, uh, the set of episodes, um, from the last missions, those people, they're not blind. They're not force blind, but they are like, they don't connect to the force in the same way as Jedi. I probably cause their midichlorian counts too low. Um, uh, but they, you know, have a different approach to the force, but they can still, you know, you or they don't utilize it. They can sense it and it's part of who they are. But so like that kind of thing I'm okay with especially because it comes from Lucas, but like anybody being completely force blind or like hyper force, you know, powerful, like, you know, extra midichlorians in them or whatever because of their species, like, eh, I don't like that idea. So I hope that's not the case for the Yoda species or the child species. Um, but anyway, I would, I would love to know, or I would love for, uh, like the church of the force or whatever to be, um, you know, part of the, the narrative potentially. I just, I like the idea and I want all my Star Wars to connect better. Uh, and I also hope that we find out in this season how the child got where he was being held, you know, who was doing it, why, 
uh, all that stuff. Because I think those are important questions to answer. You can't just, I mean, we know why the plans were in R2-D2. You know, like, he's a bit of a MacGuffin, you could say the child is. But, uh, you know, R2 also defies that um, that genre trope or whatever. Or storytelling. Uh, what do you call it? Utility? Uh, whatever. You know what I'm trying to say. So, anyway, that's all I have to say for now. Uh, like I said at the top, you can find uh, all my fully operational analysis at mjmunoz.com slash fo. You can find uh, everything else I do at mjmunoz.com. I have podcasts on Tokusatsu. Uh, there's some anime stuff there. There's comics, uh, Star Wars and non-Star Wars comics. And uh, that's pretty much what I'm going to leave you with. Um, so you can go ahead and check that out. Uh, get into all the things that I enjoy and have reviewed and analyzed and whatnot just for the sake of it, just for the fun of it. And you can uh, listen along and comment and yell at me about stuff and we can argue or fight or just commiserate over certain things if you want. And uh, yeah, that's all I have to say. So until next time, folks, take care.